And we all have these. We all have these stories about who we are and who we're not and what we like and what we don't like. And but when we strip all of that away, when we strip all of the stories and um, our histories away, like what is left? What is left at the core of our being? And for all of us, that's our nervous system. And so anytime that we're really talking about you on this path of self-inquiry and, and self-connection and, and, you know, all of the reasons that people come to the practice, uh, I think we have to talk about the nervous system in some way because it's at the core of who we, who we are. You're listening to The Yoga Room with Mark Stevens, a place for exploring evocative and provocative ideas and conversations about yoga, life, myth, science, and making the world a better place for all. Despite a teacher's best efforts to teach safe yoga practices, accidents can happen due to a variety of unpredictable circumstances, such as an injury during practice or someone tripping on a mat and falling. B-Yogi Insurance is the number one rated yoga insurance provider in the U.S. and covers teachers wherever they teach, in studios, outside, streaming live, and even on pre-recorded video classes. B-Yogi covers over 60 styles of yoga, from acro yoga to vinyasa to stand-up paddle yoga, and you can combine other modalities, such as massage and pilates, into one affordable policy. In addition to liability insurance with B-Yogi, you get a free website, stolen equipment coverage, identity theft protection, and tons of discounts on yoga equipment, retreats, software, classes, and more. B-Yogi offers policies for part-time or full-time teachers and has a discounted rate for students still in teacher training. To save $15 off your new B-Yogi insurance policy, visit bogi.com slash yoga room or use the code yoga room at checkout. Once again, visit bogi.com slash yoga room or use code yoga room at checkout to save $15 on your policy. And you can also find the link to B-Yogi in the show notes for this episode. Welcome to the Yoga Room podcast. Uh, my guest today, Allison Tomatsulu, I met uh, just this last year. She was a participant in my advanced yoga teacher training, the 500-hour uh, training or 300-hour training on top of the prior trainings that, in this case, she and others had, had done. And I'm interested in talking with Allison for a variety of reasons, primarily about practicing yoga, uh, practicing and teaching yoga, and then also, in part, in relation to what she uh, shared with me as a part of her independent study uh, that she did as a part of that training, um, an exploration of essentially sort of how does yoga work? What's really kind of going on in there? And there are, I know, as many answers to that question in a certain way as there are people doing yoga. But there are also some particular, really interesting aspects of that that I think that Allison has has uh, explored and in, 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 in an understanding through an understanding of of how things work generally in human beings. Um, so a little bit about Allison. Uh, she dabbled in yoga in local uh, studios for a long time before she uh, really took on a lifetime of a student uh, of yoga in 2000. Uh, and she got connected to Ashtanga Vinyasa practice pretty early on and still draws inspiration uh, from that practice uh, from her years of that early morning practices in the Yoga Shala. Uh, more recently, 
she's been inspired by the work of Buddha Khan. And some who might not be familiar with Buddha Khan, uh, Cameron Chain is a quite popular yoga teacher um, now. Um, globally, I'll suggest in his presence. He started out in LA. He was there when I was there 25 years ago, it would seem. Um, and he, he, com combining sort of mixed martial arts with yoga uh, movements and a variety of other arts and a quite an amazing kind of practice. That, uh, so she's inspired by that practice as well as functional movement to find or a balanced practice that, that she puts it nurtures her life's newest phase uh, that is significantly being the mom of twin boys. Um, since about 2000, uh, yoga has been a consistent thread in her personal and pro professional life. Um, and it's here where she pulls her greatest insights from her teachings. Um, Allison's uh, unique approach, uh, she attempts to sort of navigate the mystical parts of yoga with clarity and perspective. And I'll suggest that some of that perspective arises from some of her deeper understanding of the way things work in the human body mind. So she loves teaching alignment based classes that are physiologically nourishing and mentally and physically challenging. And some of that physiological insight might come from an undergraduate degree that she has in biology and also in biomechanics um, that she studied very much at that level. Um, she also thinks that yoga has the ability to really kind of rewire us, uh, rewire the way that we think and the way that we feel and the way that we act in the world if we choose to maintain a dedicated and consistent practice. Um, Allison is currently based on the outskirts of Ottawa, Canada, and she runs her own online studio where she offers classes and on-demand on -demand videos. All of this, of course, in the show notes with links to those, to those portals of hers that are out there in the world. She's very much involved in hosting um, yoga teacher trainings and continuing education programs for yoga teachers. And I think it, it bears noting, especially if she starts to get into what we we discuss here that that uh, that Allison has has studied medicine, and that as a part of studying medicine, she focused in particular on cardiology aspects of medicine, and and more specifically on cardiac rehabilitation. And with that, came to certain insights and understandings that connect dots. It would seem to me uh, that is breathing matters, and apparently particular kinds of breathing we might call them pranayama can show up in significant ways in conditions of the heart, including the rehabilitative aspects of the heart where people have had what we might call heart conditions. So with that, I wanna welcome Allison Tomasugu. Thank you so much, Allison, for joining me here in the yoga room. And I look forward to this conversation with you very much. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me on your show. Super excited to be here. You're in Ottawa today. Uh, I often start as a little bit of a, not to be too cutesy about this, but an icebreaker. I know it can be quite cold up there. Uh, uh, but uh, how's the weather today in Ottawa, Canada? Uh, so I'm on the outskirts of Ottawa in more of a rural county, and it is currently snowing the end of March, March 28th. It's uh, about minus 15 with fresh blanket of snow on the ground. So there's a bite to the air. <laughs> Lovely. We have a little yeah. bit of a bite in the Santa Cruz mountains today. We had a shower, a rain shower just this last night, and we have a little bit more coming. We're praying, bowing, dancing for more because we have serious drought conditions still down here on the central coast of California, at least. Uh, and indeed, it is almost uh, the first of April here. And uh, as we're recording this in advance of its publication. Um, so with that, I just want to, to say, uh, again, it was a quite a joy engaging with you in the training that I did. And although an online training, we had the opportunity in it for some, I think, significant direct engagement. And 
I was just quite fascinated by a couple of aspects of that. And, and one, of the, one of which was just to appreciate your devotion to practice. And I just wanted to just hear a little bit more about kind of how that came to be. Like, I mean, it, it's abundantly clear given the, how far you've gone with Ashtanga Vinyasa and other practices that you care about this, that it matters in your life in some way uh, to, to, to have gone so far and deeply as you have in the practices. I'd just like to hear a little bit more about like, you know, why yoga in contrast to just staying with, say, some other kind of movement art or something, going to the gym. Yeah, I think it's a great question and one that I pose uh, to myself and my students as well. And was sort of the nucleus of the paper that I submitted for your 300 hour uh, teacher training program is like, why does yoga work instead of maybe lifting weights or running or, or any other movement practice? Why specifically yoga? And I think for me, when I started at uh, a younger time in my life, when I first walked into the yoga room, the yoga shala was a vinyasa type of class. Uh, just the feeling of the room and the feeling inside and the feeling of breathing deeply and the feeling of being able to relax and all of these things that maybe people say uh, after their experience with yoga. But it wasn't until that I first went into a Mysore uh, practice in my hometown of Toronto, Ontario, that there was something that just sparked this depth of curiosity for me as to why are people doing this? So why are people here at five o'clock in the morning doing these acrobatic sort of gymnastic type of things with their body uh, day in and day out? And that curiosity naturally led my sort of scientifically based mind to understanding the science of why people are doing this. And this sort of started my quest of looking at the science of why yoga works. And so, you know, how does this deep breathing affect your nervous system? How do these positions of putting your legs behind your head and balancing on your hands, like how could this possibly make you relax? And in my research uh, found, okay, there's some real physiological answers as to why this works and what's happening really at the core of our body. And of course, as any other yoga practitioner knows, you can only go so far uh, in terms of understanding the practice by reading books and listening to, at that time, VHS tapes and things like this of people doing yoga. And it had to be more embodied. And so because I had this scientific understanding of why it works, now I wanted to feel it. And that's when I really dove into a pretty steady and consistent Mysore practice for many years and just started to feel all of those things that I had read. And I don't even think it's much more complicated than that because it really was just a feeling uh, that could be backed up by the science, but it's the feeling that made me keep coming back. Uh, it's the feeling that keeps me here today. Um, and it's the feeling that inspires me to keep teaching and sharing with my students because you can feel that feeling in other people, even on a screen. And in the last couple of years, that's been the biggest revelation to me is that there can still be energy exchange on the screen. And it just further reinforced that it really is just this feeling that keeps you coming. Um, you, you went in some ways, I'll suggest from A to Z just now. That is, <laughs> <laughs> we went... There's a lot in between, I think. That is, okay. Um, and I, which I appreciate, though, that 
broad brushstroke to begin. And I'm with you. That is in, in a couple of ways. One that is the A being you step your feet into the into the pond or into the river a bit, and you get this feeling. Uh, initially, vinyasa flow, then into a Mysore style uh, environment. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with this, that is in a particular style or method of yoga called Ashtanga Vinyasa, its primary means of being shared and, 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 and of experience is in a class in which you aren't led in a pose by pose orchestrated way by an instructor, but rather there's a set sequence of postures that you're doing on your own in the sense of at your own pace with the breath and it's set out and there's a teacher in the room moving and usually with some assistance moving through the room to give you support and guidance but you're largely kind of on your own if you will doing that that practice and so again like no one is doing anything at the exact moment of everyone else it's not a teacher saying okay now do chaturanga up dog down dog or whatever the, now come to triangle pose except usually in most my sore environments there's a once a week led class uh, but no less the heart of the practice is is, is this Mysore style uh, which for me the first time was just both mind-blowing and heart opening maybe for similar reasons that is just in awe in part of what I saw in that room because one comes into it as a beginner and there's almost always people who are not just at the there are different levels of this practice um, uh, several different levels of it and one must sort of be, be adept in the one level before being moved on to the given the permission the, the guidance to move on to the next level of it and so you're in a room with some people that are doing some what well, would seem they would be in Cirque du Soleil it would seem to, 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 to some who walk into that room they're like doing what seems like crazy acrobatic gymnastic kinds of things. And remarkably, they seem kind of calm. And so this is something that can be really perplexing to the newer practitioner of this Mysore style practice where you're just trying to do this thing called pick up and jump back and you can't do it or float through and you just can't do it. That say most initial or early on practitioners of Ashtanga Vinyasa can't do the, many of these things. And we look around, the, at least I'm sharing some of my experience here, Allison, that is, we're looking around the space going, huh, how? And there is this sense of just this vibe in the space where people, there's, a, there's not a lot of talking. You hear a teacher occasionally whispering to a student. What you hear is the sound of the breath and some grunting and groaning sometimes, but mostly you hear the sound of the breath, um, I would suggest. Um, so um, in this, my sort of style, um, this sense of there being I want to go back to sort of the A of that, that is the feeling that one has in this experience. And you took us all the way sort of to the Z, if you will, of, of discussing, um, you know, going to a place of really wanting to understand that sort of scientifically, if you will, and explaining it, uh, having a deeper understanding of the neurophysiology and the, uh, what's happening um, of, in this. And then that coming back in a beautiful way, it sounds to me, I want to get into with you, uh, to being with you as a source of insight as you're doing the practice. There are many people, I will suggest most, who are not going to dive into the neuroscience or the neurocardiology, if you will, of, of, of yoga practice. They're no less feeling things in their body minds. They're no less experiencing something and that's all that, at a certain level, I think that ultimately that matters. And I, at a certain point, I want to get into this discussion of why it might matter and be helpful to have those deeper understandings, especially around things like 
understanding contraindications or different paths and what it might inform. But but for now, just that going back to that that level of of feeling, of experience, of being in it. I'd love to hear a little bit more about like, you know, and perhaps it's ineffable. Perhaps there's something there that one can't give words to. It's too noetic, if you will. But what's there in that? What, what, but if you could kind of, if, if you're open to this, Allison, that is to kind of peeling back a little bit of you know, what, what, what's in that, just forget the science for a moment, so like, which I know you do sometimes, which is beautiful. But like, what's, this, what's, that, what's that taste, that feeling, that yeah, the to, to leave the science out of it sometimes can be a bit tricky for me. Um, but the feeling, and you said it in the introduction to this episode here, uh, that I really feel like yoga can change the way we feel, think, and act in the world. And the first thing is change the way that we feel. And how this is done is the yoga mat while sometimes could be considered as a place where we sort of show up and park every other part of our life at the door so to speak you know you come into a classroom and it's sort of like oh leave whatever came before this there and just kind of carve this time out of your day to be separate and apart in my experience it's that it's quite the opposite it's the yoga mat becomes this little slice of rubber that you come to and you really do just bring all of the other stuff with you there. And it becomes very difficult to compartmentalize and leave the other part of your life somewhere else. And so instead of treating yoga as a bit of an escape method to disconnect from what's going on in our life, my experience is that the yoga practice becomes this vehicle to re really explore the things that are going on in our life, in our day-to-day -day, as a parent, as a, a professional, you know, whatever other hats that you seem to wear. And so my experience was, wow, a lot of these feelings are showing up on the mat. And these feelings could be frustration, self-doubt and judgment and the whole gambit really. Uh, and at first they just seem like they're isolated to the yoga practice. As you said, oh, I, I feel so <laughs> frustrated. I can't pick myself up. How could I possibly, this thing looks so easy and the person over there seems to be doing it floating through space and, and time, but I'm really st struggling here. But over time you start to the, the, you start to bridge that gap between yoga practice and life. And these feelings that you have on the mat start to show up in other places and vice versa it, it's all the same and the pra the practice then can be a way to inform how we're feeling off of the yoga mat our life can be a vehicle to inform the things that we're feeling on the yoga mat and they can both be used to make the other a little more clear if that makes sense <laughs> it it Makes sense. I want to. I want to continue to plummet, if you will. Uh, that is to explore this in this particular point. I think it's it's uh, a rich one. Um, there, there's some time. Of course, there are seemingly an infinite array of yoga types types of yoga practice, an infinite array indeed of of yoga philosophies of different sort of theories, and we can see this in rich abundance in the ancient literature. There's not one yoga and there are hundreds of different um significant ancient 
to medieval works on yoga and tantra that relate very much to the practices that we do today, many with particular kinds of ideas about, well, what is yoga? And they often have very different ideas, even contradictory ideas about what is yoga, giving us the broad array of sort of, again, sort of yoga philosophies and all. Um, and, and in it, or, or we might think of yoga as a certain sort of different technologies, if you will. And what's the, what, is the, what is the technology about, uh, applied to? It's applied to, well, human beings, um, or, or perhaps we might think of them as organic body minds living in real life in real time with complication, with indeed, we find a consistent thread through much of the yoga literature and not just yoga, but other, say, let's say, spiritual and religious literatures, um, the idea that we're suffering on, on some level. And this seems to be a core both motif and motive of everything uh, that we find in this, in this realm, that human beings are suffering. And then, of course, someone's going to offer you a way to stop that suffering based on their theory or their you know, idea of the nature of the universe or of God or whatever it happens to be. They're going to help you overcome that suffering and have what, a better life, uh, whatever that means, or, or transcend this life, uh, liberate yourself entirely from the mortal coil mortal coil. Um, so I'm, I'm going to ramble a little bit more and set the t set up the table here a little bit more for this next kind of question or point. And that is, well, in this, there's this idea that for many in this practice, that it is a practice of, of, of becoming more aware about everything that we might in our lives. And I, and I heard a part of what you said a moment ago that, and I, this is true for me as well, that is that in coming into yoga initially, there was a sense of, <clears throat> of wanting to escape certain things. That is, there was a sense, whether it was escaping the stress of just that day and, and not understanding the whys or the hows or the wherefores, I would just do this, this practice. <clears throat> and all I knew was that when I came out of Shavasana or really went into it, but certainly when I was walking away towards my bicycle or my car, I felt better than I did when I walked in. I just, felt better. And that motivated me to come back the next day, as well as I must say, the social aspect of the experience that there were others doing this, and it just felt cool, felt great, it felt right, it felt like this is the, this is the place that this is the place to be right now. So where I'm going to go with this is that, in certain ways, there are ideas that are pretty powerful out there in the yoga culture that would suggest, you know, that, 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 you know, don't allow those intruding thoughts to occur. That is, you're in this practice, focus, you know, if your mind starts to wander, and this is also tied to early yoga practices that are pre-asana, if your mind is wandering, that itself is, is the demon, that itself is the indication of the suffering of, 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 of the problem that's at, at hand here. And so do all these things so that you don't wander. Well, I start to wonder about that. I wonder about the wandering. And if the wandering itself, as you put it, exploring, um, I'm going to go with that now, that is... There's not some beauty, some value in allowing the mind to wander here and there, in going down various rabbit holes on your mat, in the whatever, so whether it's a Mysore style practice or not. But I think there's something beauty in the Mysore style individualized in your practice practice that you, you notice where your mind goes and you're using everything that comes to you as what, well, Patanjali just discusses as, and others as Zvadhyaya, as self study of self-exploration and that we are always and forever opening ourselves up to yes let's go down that rabbit hole what's in it what's and let's go deep into that rabbit hole what's in there who, who who am i and how who am i and how can i get clearer about it all so 
um, please. Well, I, I love this idea. And it's one of the things that I love about tantric thought, which is that idea of just instead of sort of renunciation and, and separating, uh, you know, good from bad and right from wrong and things like this, it's more just about immersing yourself into all of it and being in all of it and experiencing sort of the extremes and the polarities. And I know for my practice and just my life, it's I, I want to experience it all. And I it's not it doesn't make sense to me that I can separate parts of my life from other parts of the life of my life because they're all interconnected. Everything is. Um, and so to immerse yourself in the good, the bad, the frustration, the joy, all of that, so much insight can be excavated from all of those moments in your life. And that was, I think, one of the major things that pulled me into the Mysore practice because of its more structured approach um, in the shala, you know, sort of traditionally, oh, you come in and you practice six days a week and you take one day off and your moon days. But the idea that you come into practice, you know, maybe at the same time every day, sort of no excuses. And it was my first experience of yoga being so disciplined prior to that dabbling in Hatha classes, vinyasa classes, and, you know, just various classes and studios. It was very much about, oh, just kind of see where you are, take rest day and, you know, honor this and honor that. And and while I think there's a lot of value in that, my experience is that I, there's so much value in showing up every day and doing the practice, although its outer form may change and be different and according to how you're feeling, but showing up and doing it anyway and seeing what's there and seeing how you then deal with what's there. It's interesting that um, the, the, the idea of discipline in practice, um, somewhat, <clears throat> some <clears throat> feel that they must be altogether disciplined, focused, intense, if you will, like really in it <clears throat> uh, at, at work or at home or in their, or, or in their, in their life out off the mat, out in the world. And they come to yoga. What they really want to do is dance. What they really want to do is not, not have to worry, think, concern themselves with anything at all, but just like let it fly. And <clears throat> excuse me. And some would even call this sort of in a way I don't find all that. I don't really go with myself. This one, you know, get your yoga on, not just like a checkbox for something during the day, but it almost is. But it, in it is a sense of something has happened to them as well, even though they are not in there in such a disciplined way. No less, they're doing something that allows them to, to feel better. I don't want to take anything away from that person doing something that he or she or they feel is making their life better in some way. At the same time that I say that, I think there is something of a missed opportunity where there is something in this that's absolutely pregnant with possibility for deeper insight and a greater, better life, if you will. And, and so even before we get to postural practice, even before we get to, to, to Tantra, way before we get to that medieval practice from around the fifth or sixth century, you know, the, the rise of Tantra, we have these practices that are there, some of them born of Buddhist influence and some of them born of 
Stramana movements that are not connected to Buddhism, that is of tapas, of austerity, of really being disciplined in what one is doing, an aesthetic lifestyle, an aesthetic quality of being, of living, of thinking, of not letting things get by, slip by the mind, of, of really subjecting one's every moment of experience to self-examination, to understanding, to, to, to transcending, to, to the, 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 the difficulties of the mind, where it's seen that it is in the difficulties of those thoughts and feelings that we, that we have problems, that we, that we suffer more. Some are very quick to go to you know, certain kinds of practices that say, deny all forms of human desire. Don't eat rich food, eat bland food. Don't you know, do things that are pleasurable or that are deliberately not pleasurable. Be, well, bland. Um, don't ride roller coasters. Don't get high, don't get low. Get, find the center, stay very, very, very much in the center. Avoid all those things that can lead you astray, including things like sexuality. Deny your sexuality, indeed. Commit to the path of a sannyasin. Be an aesthetic. Be a, take, take your vows. Be a pure brahmacharyan. Well, or, so where I go here now is, um, well, that's one approach. And those pro- approaches are still alive and well, if you will, out there in the world being, being proposed, uh, being prescribed, indeed, by certain yoga teachers, certain yoga gurus, that we take that path and others are saying and this is largely influenced i'll suggest indeed by the rise of tantra in the medieval era well wait a second uh you know there's potentially some value in appreciating all of who you are and not standing in judgment when you want that nice whatever it is ice cream cone or you enjoy eating that food that is just really delicious or you have ideas, feelings of attraction on a sexual level to your partner or someone in the world that you're connecting with. And there's a beautiful way that you might share with one another in a way that brings even greater joy into your life and clarity into who you are and how you are in your life. That we can entertain, be in these desires, these feelings in a way that is enriching our lives, not detracting from our lives that make our lives better, both within ourselves and and with other with other people. Again, I try to put a few things out there uh, to get you to react a bit more. Yeah. Yes, I think um, I'll start that again. I a lot of these experiences for me just come just from that, just from my experience, and I love the yoga sutras of Patanjali and the eight, the eight limbs that he proposes. And one of the best ways that I ever sort of heard it described was uh, by Jason Crandall, who said that the eight limbs could be almost visualized as a wheel with uh, one of the limbs or its subcategories in the center of its wheel, as opposed to it being considered as a tree, as uh, people often refer to it as, you know, branches growing independently of the others at different times in your life, uh, uh, more of a wheel. And the thing that you connect to most out of those limbs uh, is the thing that you just naturally go to. And you really might not be able to explain it. It's just a feeling (laughs) to come back to what we started with. And for me, that thing that I connected to right off the bat was asana. I was an asana girl, still am. And it's 
the fun physical challenges of postures and exploring them and feeling your body. Uh, it's, you know, it's very tangible. Unlike some of the other limbs, it's asana. You can see it. You can feel it. You can see it change. You can see it in space. How cool. Uh, it drew me in. And through asana, all of a sudden, all of these other layers to the practice begin to reveal themselves. And I say revealed themselves because that's really how it happened. It wasn't a process of me sort of, okay, how do I go through this checkbox of now I need to uh, sustain a pranayama practice for this long and I need to, uh, you know, be truthful for X amount of <laughs> months or years and then I can move on to the next thing. Uh, it just all of a sudden through asana, through something like a lunge or a warrior, wow, how much can you see through this thing that from the outside looks purely physical, looks a bit like exercise, especially when you think about Ashtanga Vinyasa and you see the practice. It's it's very physical as we as we talked about. And so it's this thing that you feel called to. And I I think this is why too there's there's should be no judgment in terms of this hierarchy of what type of practice is maybe more spiritually sound than others. You know, it's, uh, oh, because the Ashtanga Vinyasa is very physical. Is it more or less quote unquote spiritual than this other thing? And the list goes on and on. And we really, for me, can't say that because whatever you're pulled to as an individual, that's the path to take as Krishna explain, explains in the Bhagavad Gita, go go down that path and do the work there. I love it. Uh, that is, how to say, I, I, I take that, I want to suggest liberal interpretation of, of Krishna in the Gita. I, I, I go with you on that. Uh, some would suggest that he's not quite so liberal, that there are, he says, yes, go with what feels right, but also gives a certain limited number of, of paths, I will suggest. Uh, um, but no less, I, I, try to, I, I choose to liberalize uh, the Gita in that way, with all respect to those for whom that sounds sacrilegious um, to do. Um, I want to go with this to suggest that in, it, there are many, indeed, and it is largely informed of a tantric sensibility, to, to have a sense of you know, where are the vibrations happening for you that, that, that feel like this feels right? Where is there a sense of resonance? Where is there a sense of congruity for you that you, you come to a certain class and it feels good to you? It feels right for you. You go to another class or different, whatever it's style or the vibe of the teacher or the setting or whatever it is, it, it feel, doesn't feel as good. It doesn't feel as supportive of what you're intending to do or explore or manifest in your life. It doesn't feel as nourishing. It doesn't feel as wholesome, whatever it is. And in even sort of more pure meditation practices, the tantric teacher uh, guide, Sally Kempton, very much underlines, um, go with it what feels right. You know, if you're visualizing, if you're focusing on something, focus on something that feels comfortable, echoing in this way, so echoing what you're, you're saying, you've heard Jason and others have, have Crandall and others have said, um, I love this. That is to find what resonates. Uh, I'm not going to sit back and tell a student that because, well, let's just say for the, and I've said this before, for the longest time, I would kind of um, rain on the parade of the Bikram method. 
uh, I think it's, I think it's, I think there's some things in Bikram's method that are problematic, but uh, that is to say that there are a lot of people out there, and also Bikram's easy enough to kind of beat up on if one wanted to, I suppose, be a bully. <laughs> but um, as he is a bit, a bit of a megalomaniacal, well, let's just not. I won't go there any further than that. Um, <laughs> but just to say that there are too many people in this world who share with me that that practice is one that they like, that has benefited them that has even made their life, helped them transform their lives in their lives in altogether beautiful ways. And who am I to sit back and say, oh no, that's wrong. It's not for me. So I love this, Allison, as you're underlining, um, to find what resonates with someone. And I'm gonna bring this back in a moment to Ashtanga Vinyasa, and it might be with this, it's a different kind of idea of a, of a wheel. And this is a metaphor that was given to me by my first Ashtanga Vinyasa teacher, the mid nineties, Chuck Miller, um, where I was questioning, like not from a place of doubting, but of wanting to understand more about the, the idea of consistent practice, of daily practice, of following the particular map that, that had been given in Ashtanga Vinyasa of practicing every day, except Saturdays and moon days, new moon, full moon, for those not, that don't understand that when the moon is completely full and the moon is completely new, uh, don't practice. Uh, and then also there are moon days, quote unquote, also relating to women and their menstrual cycle. And that is a separate question that we could also get into here, by the way, if you'd like at some point. But anyway, the point is, is that Chuck Miller gave me this a metaphor of, a, of like a water wheel in the stream. And you imagine there being, you know, 28 or 30 days, you know, whatever number of days of your month. And, and, and there's a pallet that, that for each of the, uh, uh, there's a spoke for each wheel, a pallet off the end of that spoke that, that, that catches the water in the waterfall that causes the wheel to turn. Well, take out four of those every now and then, and, or whatever number, take out seven in a row. You miss a week of practice because, well, whatever work or life. Well, what happens to the water wheel? Imagine that water wheel, each pallet there. And yes, once a week, there's one that's, that's taken away and on moon day here and there. But otherwise what happens with consistent practice is that wheel starts to turn really consistently, really evenly. And it's not just this evenness of what's happening that what we might think of as just say the physical tissues, but in that sort of, for some at least, a deeper practice of self-study, of becoming aware of ourselves, and that we show up there every day, whether, and for the most part, this is an early morning practice, for most people it is, um, and before you get into your day, there you are, in yourself, <laughs> examining, exploring, going down perhaps those rabbit holes, and day by day by day, it becomes a refining practice of self-understanding. I think that beautiful, that, that, that kind of discipline, consistent practice rather, is just, again, filled with possibility for self-understanding, having a better life. Through that feeling, we become, as you put it, I think, think just back up, we can come to, it changes how we think. And how we think becomes a, a, a major factor in then how we act in the world. Well, and I, I think it's... Oh, sorry. No, no yeah. Uh, well, I love that imagery of the wheel, wheel that Chuck Miller has. It's it's so easy to really picture it spinning and the water flowing, and it's just so lovely. And I think this is why, to come back to your first question, 
is what keeps me coming back to this practice so consistently, what, what keeps me coming back to a steady practice. And it's that the practice truly can be a practice for a lifetime. Uh, and I really believe that at the core of my being, but in order for it to become a practice for a life, lifetime, we need to develop the skill of listening to our body and listening to our mind and being able to observe it and feel it for, for what it is. And there's these ideas of, you know, oh, what is a full practice? Like coming into the shala every morning and doing a quote unquote full practice. Well, well, what is that? Does that mean going through first, second, third, fourth, whatever series in its entirety, six days a week? I mean, at a time in my life, absolutely it was. <laughs> and that, that was my big motivating factor. But at this point, it's, it's not that. It's okay, showing up to the mat and showing up empty every day. And I'm coming here, I'm doing the same thing that I did yesterday. Let's say I'm doing primary series again, fifth week, fifth day in a row. Nothing's changed in terms of the sequence of postures and the way, you know, how many breaths you take and this and that. But if you can show up empty, empty your cup of what sort of the, the practice that came before and begin to practice in a way that is a method of inquiry into what is going on right now, these postures, the breath, the drishtis, all these things as just tools of inquiry, then we can begin to use each and every practice as a completely new way to, to see ourselves. And if we do this every single day and are committed just to that, instead of committing to primary series, second series, third, whatever it is, and just showing up empty every day, the practice becomes a lifetime practice because it will change with you day to day. And uh, for some, I think, and for me, absolutely difficult to let go of some of those postures that you clung on to, you know, oh, my leg isn't going by behind my head today. Wow. Like this is calling me, causing me <laughs> immense stress. But through that, we see, ah, oh, aparigraha, here, here I am grasping at something that was. And so where am I right now in practice? Am I here right now, breathing and being in my body and seeing what is? Or am I 12 hours ago, staying there, staying in that place when the hip was open and, you know, this and that. And so this is a big, this has been a big transition for me in the last few years, just becoming a mom and having a busier schedule that's devoted a little bit more to other people. Um, okay, what what is there today? What's there for energy? What's there for time? Uh, what's what's going on in my changing body? And how can I honor that while still working within this framework that I love and deeply respect? So it's a it's an interesting negotiation that goes on. <laughs> I, I hear you describing the Buddhist will call this beginner's mind in a certain way that we show up or empty that is uh we show up every day and it is i don't want to this is such a cliche but sort of it is what it is but in this case again it is what it is but you're in that is in a way where you're open to it becoming transformed that is you're going to well see what comes to you you start to do the practice you're within this sort of container of the practice what comes to you are you looking around ah I'm looking around. I'm distracted. There's this practice to help us recognize that called drishti, 
Tristana practice. Am, am I am I tripping on something that's four postures further down the sequence because it's a set sequence? Am I am I occupied with that? Attached to wanting it really a lot, like moving towards it? Oh, I'm grasping. And so, or am I stuck on what happened three postures back? Still, still there. And so I love this, right? There's this way that in this way, well, Richard Freeman describes, you know, the practice in one of, in one of his metaphors as well as, as a mirror that is what's happening here. Uh, you're happening here. That's what's really <laughs> happening here. You're happening here. And in your happening, we have these sort of, sort of different types of mirrors that we can utilize. Where's, where are you with respect to the, the breath? To more specifically, your breathing. Where are you with respect to your gaze? What does that mean? Why are you doing? Why are you over there? As I think you put it's it, like, these, please. Yeah, it, it's it's this idea. I think for me that the yoga practice isn't a means to become disconnected from yourself and all of your parts, so to speak, but as a practice to become more connected to everything that you are and, and the world around you. And it's, you know, it can extend beyond the body and your own physical practice too. I know for me, it's if I have a busy day and I know that I want to be really present with my kids and I have a lot to be doing that's going to be physically exerting, uh, maybe the body feels really great and really open and also very strong. Um, but I know that there's maybe I, okay. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna contain that because there are other things that uh, I need to be doing, and it becomes this interesting thing uh, of of listening and then responding to that. Because I think to touch on something we had talked about earlier, this idea of working within sort of a, a really structured framework that's very disciplined, like the Ashtanga system of, you know, practice every day, and this is the sequence, and this is where you look, and this is how many breaths you take, and things like this. Um, it, that system doesn't work for everybody, and it's, I don't think it's designed to work for everybody, and, it, and no, not everybody needs to do this practice. But my experience is that when you can commit to something that does have a structure, that has a methodology, uh, it, it creates some boundaries for you to play in for a time. And after the experience of playing for many years, then you can, I think, intelligently begin to pull the pieces that work and make sense for you. And, you know, based on your other things in your life and other things that you're studying. And from there, you begin to find a little more freedom freedom in practice where which is what we're talking about now where okay maybe i'm not doing my full practice you know full uh, practice today or i'm leaving these postures out and they're just not serving me anymore but that i think awareness and almost body intelligence comes from that experience of working within a framework and i feel like that is a really important piece to the puzzle like any professional professional person you know it's uh, the person who's able to go on the fly and explain things clearly and work in the moment likely didn't come into this profession that way, but spent many years reading the texts and doing the uh, the experiments and the, the clinical things that were really immersed in the protocols. And from there, they've pulled, okay, well, this is what works for me. And this is what I find is the most successful or the best. And that's an experiential knowledge, which you can't really teach. Um, and I think it, it applies to yoga as well. 
If you're a yoga teacher or wellness professional who's thinking about building a website, teaching online classes, creating a course, or starting a membership community, I have an invaluable resource to share with you. Offering Tree is an affordable, all-in-one platform that makes it easy to streamline your offerings, scale your business, and communicate with your community. You can use it to build a website, take payments, manage your schedule, send emails, and you can go much, much further with it. With Offering Tree, you can host in-person and online events, classes, and appointments. You can take online registrations and payments, send automatic confirmation and reminder emails, offer discounts, tiered and donation-based pricing, create engaging digital content, video libraries, courses, challenges, and coaching programs for your students or clients anywhere, at any time, all from one system that has excellent customer service when you need it. Offering Tree provides all the administrative management resources that you need for your wellness business so you can spend more time with your clients, doing what you love and find inspiring, and less time fiddling with technology. To learn more about Offering Tree and to take advantage of a special discounted price, visit OfferingTree.com slash yoga room or click the link in the show notes and you'll get 50% off your first three months or 15% off an annual plan. Again, visit OfferingTree.com slash yoga room to grow your business and to support this show. OfferingTree.com slash yoga room. I love that you underline that it's not about the series. It's not about the advancement. It's not, and this, ten, I, and I underline this in part because it, it shows up in the culture of not only a, of this particular method of Ashtanga, as I say, shows up generally in yoga. It's like uh, sometimes it becomes a quite a bit of an attainment to practice. That is, how can I get this and how can I get that? That it's not an aparigaha practice. Uh, aparigaha, not grasping, being covetous, trying to get something that's sort of not there, but a, a method, as you're, as you're saying, as I think, of, of self-understanding, uh, of self-awareness that translates into life. Uh, that here's you're saying to help us become more connected in healthy ways, in, in healthy ways in the world, in the world, in our relationships in the world. Um, this is, I would suggest, not a central theme, thread, sutra uh, in the yoga literature generally. And I'll, I'll go out on a limb to say as much that 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 we don't say find. Uh, social psychology in the Yoga Sutra or in the Upanishad corpus or, or, or that it's, it's really about, you know, the individual, uh, you know, expression of whatever you want to say it is and different philosophies will tell you, well, what it is and, and it's transcendence, it's liberation, it's et cetera. But even in all of that, it is, it, we don't find much discussion of, well, let's just call it the life of the householder. And here we're talking about the life of, well, most human beings in the world today, let's say most people certainly in the West doing yoga, I'll say most people doing yoga today are fully householders in that they live in a house or an apartment. Uh, they have relationships with other people, including with uh, children. Um, Find a reference to relationships with your children in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali or, or, or you're just not going to find it. In the tantric literature, we get some things about interaction and it's not only about sexual interaction. It's more than that, certainly. And, but no, but it's, sexual interaction is an, an important part of that. But no less, the point is there's not a lot 
we have to really dig, extrapolate, develop, I think, our ideas, our practices for how we make those connections. That is how we take those experiences that we're having in our practices and bring them into our fuller lives in ways that are meaningful, that are about the social psychology and the sociology of yoga, if you will, getting it out there, out there um, into the world. Before I lose this thought, by the way, I want to kind of go to, I appreciate that you mentioned in there, learning to play, uh, appreciating the boundaries and the structure of our certain practice, but at the same time, having an openness to other possibilities. And so you might someday say even, I know this is going to be absolutely sacrilegious to some people for me to say this, but you might say, skip a pose oh. or yes, or worse yet for some modify an asana. I've, I've mentioned before that, uh, that David Swinson's, well, I think his, his Ashtanga Yoga, the practice manual is a wonderful uh, resource. Uh, he got taken to task by a lot of more purist folks in the Ashtanga Vinyasa realm uh, when that book was for, and to this day, uh, but back when he first put it out there, because he suggested things like modifications, uh, alternative postures, even use of props, which my teacher Chuck Miller was quite supportive of our, and Matthias Rati quite supportive of our using props. So I, I learned Pashasana, for those who aren't familiar, it's a deep squat, let's say, with your knees together. Uh, my heels wouldn't touch the floor. Chuck was like, here's a here's a block. I'm like, really? Cool. Okay. It helped me a lot to eventually have my heels on the floor in Bashasana. It's it also has a wrap, a, a twist involved, by the way. So it's a kind of a complicated squat. Very, anyway, very the tight. point is that, <laughs> yeah, tight hamstring. I mean, tight uh, gastrocnemius for me at that point. But let's say um, uh, where I'm going to go with this is Okay. I do appreciate the contributions of that, of a stronger vinyasa to the, to the smorgasbord, the buffet of possibilities in yoga. Is there something that I also have concerns, as you know, but from, from practicing and studying with me a bit this last year um, with the, some particular aspects of the sequences themselves that I don't know in their creation, if they were put together in the most informed ways, that there are certain postures that appear here and there that don't, don't, this doesn't make sense to me. Why Marchyasana D is in the primary series, the first, let's call it beginning level Ashtanga Vinyasa. You have an extraordinarily complex posture that can, well, let's just say hurt the knee. And it's, it's just, it's just Kind of a complex posture. Also, anterior deltoid. There's there's there's, la- there's labrum issues with the, the, the shoulder labrum issues with it. There's a variety of concerns that can arise in that posture. I have to wait to get the second series before I can do a, a simple little locust pose, which is a wonderful posture for strengthening my lower back. So there are some things about the assembly of the of the sequences that I think are could be reshuffled in in more informed ways with deep respects to whomever one wishes to bow to about these things, Krishnamacharya or whomever it is. Um, now seemingly unnamed people like Padabi Joyce, um, so who is also hugely responsible for the creation of this, of this sequence. Um, that, 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 um, that, we, that, we, that we also might take a look at certain postures, and this will maybe is our segue into neurology, um, of like Setu Bandhasana, where the weight of the body is supported exclusively on the top of the head and the feet with the arch of the body to the sky and the arms crossed over the chest, Charlie Chaplin form, (laughs) some will call it, ouch for some people, right? Cervical hyperextension, uh, 
just below the brainstem. Um, we're talking about in certain points in yoga practice, what I want to go into pretty soon here about say vagus toning. And uh, okay, well, 10th cranial nerve is not too far away from here. Uh, so where I want to go is after that rambling a little bit is well, modification to practice. Like, yes, please. Well, I think it's, it's so, I mean, I think it's so bang on when we're talking about the arrangement of postures. And as you said, for some people, it's completely sacrilegious to rearrange the postures, maybe more sacrilegious to rearrange them than to modify them, um, according to some people. But as a, as a practitioner, I definitely feel like I am more biologically blessed in that my joints have always been fairly mobile, my tissues have been pretty flexible. And so some of these more contorted positions maybe didn't seem as extreme for me just walking through the door. Now, in my experience with teaching people, that's obviously not always the case. And we know now through the study of the body and and with the advancement of technology that's been able, that's been allowed us to look at the body more closely, we see that, I mean, while we're all very similar at the core in terms of bones and general shape and how many bones we have, I mean, our skeletons are vastly different, especially at the level of the joint. And so all of these positions, of course, aren't going to work for everybody. And I think to say that they just will, and the more you try to put your leg behind your head, uh, you know, it will get there one day. I think it's just a bit naive because we just, we know that it's just not true. And, and some people's um, hip joint doesn't rotate or flex the, the, this way to allow for that range of motion optimally or safely. And so the idea of incorporating the wonderful world of props that uh, we've been given in modern practice is it's not only such a great way for people to be able to experience some of these postures, but I think for me and, and the people that I teach is what we had talked about earlier, this embodied knowledge. And if you're going to ask someone to do something like, you know, um, Urdhva let's say at the, in the backbending uh, sequence of primary series, well, they've probably and likely just spent anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes folding forward, uh, holding these forward folds for five, six, seven breaths, and then likely kind of flowing briefly through some up dogs in between. And then all of a sudden we get to Urdhva Dhanurasana, uh, where we're in a really big back bend, but we're also upside down and bearing. Urdhva Dhanurasana is the please uh, upward. The, the wheel position. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the wheel position, yeah, uh, upward bow, and you know, so we're upside down. We're balancing on four points of contact. It can be really complicated, and for a lot of people, they haven't really had a chance to feel what it feels like to activate the extensors of their body and stabilize their hips and use the strength of the legs and, uh, you know, stabilize their shoulder girdle, all of these things that we try to encourage um, in something like in wheel posture. And so all of a sudden now when we can use props and things like this, uh, we give these students an opportunity to, oh, well, this is what it feels like. And this is how I activate this. And this is how I tap into this part of my body so that then they can take that awareness with them as they may potentially, and they might, they may never not 
begin to explore that posture without uh, without the props. And you see it in Pashasana, very common. It's, you know, like what, it seems, how could I possibly wrap my arms around my legs and my back and squat down this low? It, it becomes a bit mind boggling to one who is basically just focusing on not falling over because their heels aren't connected to anything. But all of a sudden place that wedge or that block underneath your feet, there's that stability that you're looking for. Okay, so within that stability, now how can I find the freedom and the refinement of what I need to carry into it without the the props? And I think the big one with the rearranging of the postures is whenever I teach someone new to um, the Ashtanga practice, always, always, always take those back bends from second series right at the beginning. Let's explore those, Shalabhasana and all of its amazing variations. You know, what does this feel like? What a way to connect to your back chain, uh, being fully supported on the floor, uh, having that full connection, and you can really start to tap into that. <laughs> and then, wow, we take this to something like wheel position. Okay, now I know where my back is, and, and, now, I, um, and now I know how to use it. And then for the people who never do wheel pose for whatever reason, can that person not ever benefit from doing these backbends that engage the whole back chain? Well, if we were to follow the system as it is, then likely no. But what if we deviate? <laughs> and all of a sudden this person is benefiting from the shalabhasanas and, and variations of without needing to um, go down a road that might just not be appropriate. Deviation is a is a sometimes a pejorative term to some, depending on what one is talking about. It can also be seen in a very affirmative way as an aspect of creativity. I'm fond of quoting Ganga White, who says, you know, we stand on the shoulders of history to see more clearly into the future. Uh, every bit of yoga, a, a sort of style, method, even theory, philosophy, built upon something that came before. It's a part of uh, human development, human uh, it's a part of society. It's a part of human civilization. As we build, we learn from one another and we, we, we create anew. And who's to say that, that the pure practice is only the one that was written in, you know, the year 786 or, you know, 500 years before the common era or in the 1930s or, or, or in contrast to saying, hmm, create ideas there, Sri Sri Krishnamacharya or Sri Sri whomever it is, uh, you know, Yogiji, uh, Guruji. Um, but hmm, here's some other ideas that, well, we've learned in the last hundred years, let's say, a lot, a lot, maybe more in the last 50 years, I often suggest than we did in the previous well, long period of time because of just how much people are practicing today and the insights of things like, um, well, biomechanics and, and neurology, and we're understanding, we have technologies, we can look inside the brain with functional MRI, where blood flow follows nerve flow, if you will, we can see what's being activated and what's not being activated in the brain. And we can see in there in ways that, that potentially couldn't quite see, although he might have sensed and understood on some other level, let's say, but no less, we've learned and we've learned at the level of biomechanics that things like, you know, not everyone's femoral neck, acetabular uh, angles and, are, are the same, that we have differences there that affect things, very much affect things like, well, the ability to put one's legs behind one's back. Some people, I don't care how much yoga they do, lifetimes of it, I suppose, they will never, with that hip structure, 
put their leg behind their back. Or if they do, the only way they're going to get there is by so completely contorting their spine, that is flexing their spine and probably whacking their neck in the, along the way, that it's not going to be a, in keeping with what we call aparagraha and ahimsa, not hurting and not being covetous of something. So I love any, I, it's always, of course, music to my ears when I hear someone saying, yeah, we might modify in this way or that way or consider some other approach, even taking the risk of saying things like playing with the sequence itself. That in itself is a big issue to a lot of folks. And I respect that they're committed to a certain way and, and I'm not going to judge them for that, except where they're attempting to impose it upon people when it is presented in a way that this isn't, isn't, isn't just a practice, but this is the practice. And they use their influence, their power, if you will, as a teacher or as a writer or whomever it is to say, this isn't just a practice, this is the practice. And if you are really committed to this, and sometimes playing upon, play, praying upon and playing upon people's insecurities about things or just openness, open-heartedness, open-mindedness, seeing this teacher of like, wow, you're on a pedestal, like I, they follow them. And they follow them down a path to a, you know, injury or frustration or something that's not so altogether healthy. I love the idea of, again, Ganga, stand on the shoulders of history. It's okay to be creative. What a beautiful thing to bring some creativity into this. It would seem to me that Budokan is an example of creativity uh, that is tr tremendously so. And I think that a lot of people are turned off by the first imagery of Budokan because they associate it with only with mixed martial arts. Um, a lot of people don't appreciate how much the martial arts, including ancient martial arts, like the Kalari martial arts in South India, ancient Kalari martial forms are become a part of yoga practices, including uh, warrior two uh, having some roots in Kalari martial arts forms. Um, so I, I, this is an attempt to segue a little bit. I want to segue back to Vegas nerve, Vegas Tony at a certain point here, <laughs> but I wanted to take a little detour just for a moment of uh, what is Budokan? I mean, I, I mean, I understand, but I would like for our listeners to be able to understand a little bit, have a better sense of well, not just what it is, but why for you, what's the draw of doing these forms, this other type of functional, other type of movement, let's say, um, and how does it relate to everything we've been talking about in terms of a practice that, translates from feeling to thinking to acting in the world in a better way. Yeah, so Budokan is, as you've mentioned, what I think is a really beautiful movement practice that is sort of a hybrid of yoga, martial arts, dance, Pilates, you know, all the things sort of smushed together. And its founder, Cameron Shane, is currently based in Montana. Um, I originally, the first time I studied with him was 2015. I traveled to Miami where he was living at the time and uh, studied with him in one of his teacher trainings. And this practice is a flowing practice that looks a lot like yoga from the outside. Um, but within the structure of the practice, we start to see a freedom in terms of letting go of a lot of the alignment that I was used to in some of my previous experience. And so, you know, in Ashtanga, it's this many feet, stand this many feet apart and your heels are in line and your fingers are together and, you know, you're looking here and you're looking there. Budokan all of a sudden was, you know, we go from this pose to this pose, but the transition is a feeling 
And it's less of let's place our foot this direction and this foot at this direction and externally rotate this and internally rotate this. And it's okay to go from A to B, you're going from an offensive position of let's say holding a bow and arrow ready to release the arrow you know, across the battlefield um, to a defensive position of having to block yourself and protect yourself. And what's the feeling that you embody in that space between. And so I loved this idea, uh, which first uh, was one of the things that that drew me in. I also have a Japanese heritage. My dad is Japanese and Budokan is a Japanese word uh, that means way of the warrior. Um, and Cameron Shane spent quite a, quite a bit of his time in, in Japan studying martial arts. Uh, so I loved that side of things too. Uh, but the the biggest thing for me was in my ashtanga practice there was at this time you know i'm not so sure now what it is but there was a lot of this idea of not being able to kind of move your rib cage uh so a great example is urva hastasana you know that one of the first positions of surya namaskar uh where you are standing and you just lift your arms over your head and the supposed conditions of the posture that you would bring your palms to touch and your head falls back to look to your thumbs and it was a big adjustment I always got because my ribs would want to kind of lift up and out and, and even, you know, thoracic spine extending a bit, middle back extending a bit. And it was always adjustment. Pull it in, pull it in, pull it in. Everything's drawing down and, and, uh, and things like that. And it just never felt good. And when I was in the shala practicing, I'd always do it, you know, okay, I'm gonna hold my ribs and it just felt tight. It didn't feel what, like what I wanted. But in my home practice, Oh, no, no one's here to uh, slap my wrist. So I'm going to circle my arms wide instead of lifting them up. And I'm going to let my ribs expand a little bit. And I'm going to let, you know, I'm, I'm going to do all these things that I'm not allowed to do. Uh, and wow, it felt so good. It felt so free, it, but it yeah. still felt really strong. Um, and then, and this was really encouraged in the Budokan practice. And so it just, it pulled me right in uh, to it for that reason. And after the first round that I had studied with, with Cameron there, um, I just felt so invigorated in that, okay, I've been doing this, this really regimented system for so long, and now I'm almost being unleashed. And it's kind of like a dog that you have, you know, I have, a, I have an eight-year-old uh, husky who's very active, needs lots of exercise and, and mental stimulus. But... And there's times where he needs to be leashed and and trained, you know, to walk a certain way and follow some rules to fall in line with the social graces of owning, um, having a domesticated pet in, in the world. But then there's times where he needs to be unleashed and he needs to be allowed to run freely and tap into his more primitive nature and his ancestors. And it's on the the it's the balance between the two that I noticed for him where he's you know kind of to be very cliched uh, living his best life if you will, <laughs> and after spending time in Miami with Cameron Chain I felt like okay I am I am now finding this balance for me and at this point it's uh, for me being able to pull from Budokan my work there and my experience with the Ashtanga system to find something that's in the middle. 
this is fascinating that and also the idea of sort of a more primal yoga if you will um in you know by the way in in sivananda uh uh style with the very first movement their their expression of urdhva hastasana is a, it does allow extension of the spine that is there is a backbend one not only reaches their arms up and not only gazes up but it uh, but, but but back uh and this is particularly um a violation of the rules in the in Iyengar yoga much more rule driven even than ashtanga in, in certain ways i will suggest than ashtanga vinyasa in terms of precise form Iyengar often uses the term perfect pose and that perfection is a one that is identified by say the observer as with particular qualities of alignment that are uh, pretty much universally applied even as Iyengar of course allows for modification use of props and all no less those lower ribs those floating ribs are don't change position from mountain pose to dasana to upward arms pose or dasana um, and certainly one is not going to sweep their arms out and up in a way that's well then or folding forward and down swan dive and allowing that sense of, of spaciousness across the heart as one is folding if you will um so i love that idea and i love the idea by the way of uh, the the, uh, the analogy to you of your of your husky um <laughs> we all benefit from some um well channels for the river to flow more to having some down to some some um some discipline some sort of rules in certain situations that we that can help inform things having an informed practice but also having freedom in it um as i've mentioned before in this in this podcast also i also in the, the training with you uh, my first significant teacher was eric schiffman who came out of the Iyengar method only to encounter joel kramer and have his practice revolutionized as a result and that is to a, a practice of being uh, described generally as being guided from within and it's it sort of you know in a certain way don't forget the rules but but play with the rules explore the rules here's this form here's this idea of warrior two here's this idea of a seated forward fold feel it explore it and here are some tools that you can use for feeling it breath, concepts like playing the edge, et cetera. Well, Eric goes farther, eventually creating this approach he's calling now freedom yoga. Get on your mat. What are you feeling? <laughs> Move, <laughs> go somewhere, uh, explore mm -hmm. what's happening along the way, including, and I'm gonna highlight this as you, because you did, that is tuning into the feeling in the transitions that, it, that we often think of, you know, pose, then pose, then pose. Well, okay. And that's what most of the anatomy book, that's almost all that the anatomy books ever look at, the form of the pose, not how you got from here to there. How did you get from lying on your back into that wheel? What happened along the way? What, what happened along the way, both in terms of the change in shape, that is the new anatomical form, what happened biomechanically? What forces went where and how did that occur? And what did you feel? Oh, what did you feel along the way? What is that feeling tone in it altogether, physically, emotionally, what's happening for you? And allowing all of that feeling to inform your practice, that starts to become revolutionary. I, I agree. And I think it's like we can talk about this 
well, is the is your yoga practice a practice of awareness and self-awareness and expanding that, then are you coding each pose in awareness? You know, sort of, oh, here I am in Samasiti here, something I'm I'm aware, and then all of a sudden it leaps out a bad connection in the transition to taking the arms over the head, and now, oh, connection's back on. I'm aware, here I am in, in this next posture. Or do we paint that whole transition with the same depth and potency of awareness that we have within each posture? And it comes, I think, to this idea of full practice. Well, is the full practice doing your sequence from A to B um, because that's what you've been told and having moments where you're cutting in and out of awareness? Or is a full practice a 15-minute practice where everything is completely coded in mindfulness and you've experienced everything that there is to feel along the way. And it's that transition to Urdhva Hastasana is a great example. It's, you know, why do we flex the shoulders to take them overhead? Why do we reach the arms out in front and over versus spinning them out to the side and up sort of like a reverse swan dive? Uh, well, when you do it, do, can you feel it? Can you feel it? And when I take the arms out, it's like, can you feel the spinning of the humeral head just like spinning around in its socket and, and how good maybe that might feel and how spacious it can feel uh, along the way? And versus, you know, what does it feel like when you reach your arms forward and up? Is there a feeling? And, and for me, it's they're very different experiences, completely different. And it, it's, uh, it's that feeling and that vibe that we were talking about. And I loved the Buddhicon practice for that because it really emphasized the transitions. It emphasized the feeling of it all. And it's it's one of the major things that I've pulled from it in my teaching. It's, um, I, I guess, one another one of its most iconic things is this rolling that it does. It does a lot of spinal undulation, which I also like, and it feels really nice for my spine. Um, and after a few years of practicing with it, it's sort of like, well, why? Why does this feel so good? And uh, as, as a metaphor, I think it's, well, in my Ashtanga experience, it was always leading with the head, right? Because one, one, of, the, one, one of the things within each posture is the, the drishti that we're talking about, okay? Thumb, nose, navel, whatever it is. So as I'm lifting my arms up, I'm looking to my thumbs the whole time. Well, the eyes are really the only piece of your brain that's not encased in your skull. And so if I'm following my thumbs with my eyes as I'm lifting my arms up, it becomes more of a thinking thing because that's, the, that's sort of the lead horse, if you will, taking me there. But what happens if I stand in something that looks like samastitihi, but maybe I let my head come down or even you know, close my eyes perhaps, and as I spin my arms out and up, I think of leading with my heart to let the extension that feels good in my spine travel up all the way through my head and my neck. And all of a sudden at the apex of its position, my head and, and you know neck naturally fall where they will because I've set the most solid foundation beneath it. And there I am looking to, who knows, thumbs, fingers, ceiling, nothing, I don't know. Um, but the feeling of getting there was really beautiful. And it's the metaphor of leading with your heart, I think, versus leading with your brain or your eyes. And if this practice is a practice of connection um, and a practice of feeling, I mean, 
the brain is a thinking organism. It, it does a really good job at that. And when we think of feeling, I don't know, what do we think of? I think of the heart. It's part of why in my Surya, Surya Namaskar remixes, um, well, I explore the various ways we can move the arms. But in the end, I if it's okay on one's shoulders in terms of stability of the glenohumeral joint, I encourage swan diving, breathing through the heart, moving through the heart. I think it's absolutely beautiful. Drishti, I think it's helpful to often have a focused gaze to help focus and harness our awareness to what we're doing. But I think also that it's important, as with every aspect of the practice, my newest, most consistent mantra in the last few years, play with it. Keep playing with it. Have Give yourself the space to have a sense of playfulness overall in your practice. Try this. Try that. What works for you? And by works, what feels right? What feels good? That What it feels in keeping with your intention, your conditions, and allows you to see more deeply into your life to make those connections of of a clearer feeling to ultimately then well not ultimately but also then to clearer thinking and then clearer being in our lives acting in the world in our lives in our relationships um in the world uh, that when we are moving in these various ways we don't get a lot of discussion in the yoga world. It's starting to change, of course, as everything is just, there's, we're learning more constantly. Um, there's a lot happening with our various tissues, um, including the brain, which interestingly doesn't show up a whole lot in the ancient literature of yoga. Um, indeed, that it's the moon, right? It's the refractive light, the pure lights in the heart. And I think there's some beauty in that idea. Uh, at the same time that we also recognize that the brain matters and that neurology matters. And there are lots of nerves. And sometimes we become so overwhelmed with the very idea of, well, like the brain, especially think like gener a generation or two ago, like it was just this, this mysterious like gray matter. And we kind of left it there. And there were these weird people called neuroscientists that, or neurosurgeons that did things in there. But even they didn't have very much of an understanding about this. And now we have undergraduate programs in cognitive studies all around the world. And lots of people learning lots more about the brain. And there's even lots of lay level books that are out there on the brain. It's being applied to every aspect of human culture and, and, and medicine, health, everything one can imagine, um, marketing, you name it. The brain is is a star these days, uh, and neuroscience is 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 a, is, is a star uh, these days. So we have all these nerves, uh, including some cranial nerves. Um, some would say ten. There's also cranial nerve zero, which is an interesting one, by the way. We could discuss that a little bit. Um, uh, archaic, uh, disappearing, uh, fading out. There's some mystery around that one, but but it's that tenth cranial nerve, uh, the vagus nerve, that's that also becoming uh, the center of attention. Let's say, um, um, not to play on words too much, a center of attention, but it relates to qualities of attention. It, it relates to qualities of of being present and being calm, and we have increasingly this this uh, vagus nerve most of which is related to um the parasympathetic nervous system um and most of which is related to um to sensory 
experience as opposed to motor motor action. Um, all part all part of the autonomic nervous system. Um, we have these new ideas about it, uh, including ideas such as vagal toning. Some of the science on this, I'm gonna I want to draw you out a bit on this, if I may, um, is uh, well is not is is anything but settled. That it is very rich and very open. Some are drawing heavily from Stephen Porges's work on polyvagal theory. Polyvagal theory, in some ways, building in a sort of bottom-up theory. I think that uh, Andrew Huberman, Huberman Lab, Stanford University, is one that's finding some kinship with bottom-up. Not everyone agrees. The social neuroscientists uh, <laughs> are sort of opposing this and suggesting that from the earliest inception, it wasn't like our brain was built, as some will suggest, uh, first from a reptilian, and then it developed its limbic apparatus and then it developed its cerebellum and the neocortex and the prefrontal only at the finest levels of human development do we, do we get these eventually others are saying no, 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 slow down a little bit that these really developed in human beings together and we need to be careful with going too far with i'm going to i'm setting the table here a little bit to start with that is uh we, we can go too far with the idea of bottom up and then suggesting from that 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 bottom up processing with this, a suggestion that vagal tuning and toning is from bottom-up awareness of how the, the sensations that arise from the viscera, from the various organs, come to inform things like everything from heart rate variability to qualities of awareness that is happening in that direction, rather than there being a kind of a mutual, constantly mutual influence of that with top-down processing of, that is, the thinking or, or the cognitive apparatus of the brain, uh, the, the, the conscious uh, cognitive apparatus of the brain, the neocortex flowing downwards at the same time. I put that out there just as an initial way of trying to broach our way into talking about, I would love to hear from you about, because you've really give, uh, laid this out in a clear way to, in your independent study with me actually, in other ways I know beyond that. Uh, <laughs> discussing vagal toning is a part of your discussion of why does yoga work? What's going on in there? I'd like you to share with us what, as you please, as you wish to start with how, wherever you'd like with this. Um, and along the way, I might attempt to interject if only along the way to offer some uh, to, to, or to ask you to explain certain terms that might not be familiar to our listeners, just to kind of keep it at a lay level and go as deeply as you wish beyond the lay level, but just some, some certain points might need to kind of reel it in to be clear about what we're talking about. Yeah, so it, it, um, as I had mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, it was kind of the, the beginnings for me of this whole path that I've been on for uh, two decades now. It was why why is this working why are people here it's you know why are people coming here every single day at this this crazy time in the morning and and doing these things and 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 all of a sudden feeling or, or you know seeming so relaxed not only during but after and then having that experience um, myself as well why why is this why is this working and so that led me down you know all of my sort of um laid back research, if you will, for a few years. And along the way had 
stumbled upon the, the workings of the nervous nervous system. And I found it really interesting because when we talk about uh, yoga philosophy, and there's this idea of, you know, we see it in Patanjali that the reality that we see or who we think we are is really just a veneer. And that veneer is an accumulation of, you know, lenses or imprints, if you will, based on our previous experiences. And so our previous experiences sort of put a filter over our eyes and will, of course, distort the way that we interact with our world, our environment, um, the, the way that we see things. And we all have these, we all have these stories about who we are and who we're not and what we like and what we don't like. And, but when we strip all of that away, when we strip all of the stories and um, our histories away, like what is left, what is left at the core of our being? And for all of us, that's our nervous system. And so anytime that we're really talking about you on this path of self-inquiry and, and self connection and, and you know all of the reasons that people come to the practice uh, I think we have to talk about the nervous system in some way because it's at the core of who we who we are and so the nervous system is made up of a couple different you know structures the central nervous system is comprised of the brain uh, the brain stem and the spinal cord and then we have the peripheral nervous system as well and you can think of the peripheral nervous system as anything in the periphery so what happens, and it's an analogy that I use uh, teaching, you know, some introductory type of nervous system stuff in uh, yoga teacher trainings, is that you can almost imagine the brain and, and the thoughts in the brain, thoughts from what you, you know, remembering a memory from yesterday, thinking about what you're going to make for lunch, or how do I get my foot from back there to between my hands um, in a yoga practice. All of these thoughts that go on in your brain are sort of like little cars, uh, just, just driving around. And it's it's always a bit, you know, depending on the day, traffic might be a little more dense um, than at other points in the day. And anytime that thought that you have or that feeling sort of translates into an action, you can imagine that that little car then gets on an off ramp and travels down the spinal cord, exits um, the spine and finds its parking spot in the appropriate tissue. And so this could be, I'm gonna park my little car in my bicep tissue in order to bend my elbow and take a sip of this drink. And you know, each car has its own specific parking spot everywhere in the body. Um, that car then once the, the elbow has bent <laughs> then travels back up to join the rest of the crew up there in the brain and lets the brain know and, and everyone else in the brain like, okay, we did, we did the thing, we bent the elbow and uh, we're good now. And so that's obviously a really, um, really simplified way of describing the nervous system. But I think that imagery can be helpful uh, for people when we're just starting out. And this is beautiful. I love this. It's a wonderful analogy for getting at what is happening in our peripheral nervous system, central yeah. to peripheral. Level. Yeah. And so then we think, well, depending on where that car exits the nervous system, you can or exit the spinal cord, excuse me, whether it's exiting the front of the spine or the back of the spine, uh, the car then, which is a an analogy for a nerve, becomes either a motor nerve or a sensory nerve. And so a motor nerve, you can think motor movement, you know, if it exits through the front, it's, it's telling the body what to do. We need to do this thing. We need to engage this muscle. We need to bend our elbow, step the foot. 
If it exits uh, on the other side and becomes a sensory nerve, then that car is taking its place in a receptor specifically designed for it in order to then take in information. And so you could think of the easiest analogy of um, going to, to bend the elbow to grab the cup. And so the motor nerve tells all of the muscles to do what they need to do in order to wrap the hand around the cup. But the cup is too hot and all of a sudden that sensory car that is parked in the receptors in you know, the hands and the fingers, it picks that information up. And immediately you can imagine it's like an ambulance. It, it puts on its uh, lights on the top, its cherries, and zooms back to the brain as fast as, it, as fast as it can to tell the brain that this is really hot. And the brain then interprets this information and sends another car down to the hand and tells that hand, take your hand off this cup because we're going to hurt ourselves. I want to offer and, just a, a playful suggestion here that that, that that sensory, that element in the car is AI and it has multiple cameras and sensors. And with advanced technology and cars, with self-driving cars and all, these cars have lots of ways of picking up information out there from the parking lot and the highway and everywhere else to inform it, if you will, as it races back. If you would consider that as a friendly amendment or, or to the metaphor, that is, I love this, but yeah yeah absolutely Pick, it's picking um, up more refined information yes <laughs> it's um it's the the sensory car is the product of elon musk or, or something, <laughs> something <laughs> well, it's, it's a, um yeah so it, it it sends it back and then the body reacts and i mean this is again really simplified but this is happening constantly in the body and you can imagine how fast it's happening because at any point that you've touched a hot stove or a hot cup or something like that you don't have to think about it um you don't have to think about taking your hand off or, you know, uh, in traffic and all of a sudden someone swerves in front of you to cut you off. The, that ability to put on the brakes, it's again, it's what we might call intuitive. It just happens. And this is, I mean, a good thing because we want, we don't want to have our hand on that hot cup and we want to be able to put the brakes on the car as fast as we possibly can. Um, so it, this, system is designed to be a bit protective. It's designed to um, to keep us alive, right? In terms of the evolutionary path, we, we try to do things to protect our body, uh, protect our minds, our, our vulnerable parts. And so this idea then started to move into, okay, well, how does this apply to yoga? Because it must apply to yoga if it's at the core of who we are. And um, all we're talking about is feeling and things like this. Well, this is what feeling is, is it not? And so this led me down the this this word vagus nerve, um, which uh, is uh, sort of the nucleus of um, Stephen Porges's idea of the polyvagal theory. And the vagus nerve is the tenth cranial nerve. It's the longest nerve in the body, and it is responsible for eighty percent of the parasympathetic nervous system. And the parasympathetic nervous system is sort of a branch of the nervous system, if you will, that is largely responsible for that relaxation process that happens. It's the system that governs how we relax, when we relax, and, and how long we can be there. Uh, sometimes people might say it's the um, rest, digest, and restore system, which is kind of a nice, easy way to remember that. This opposes the sympathetic system, the sympathetic nervous system, which is its opposing branch. And this system is responsible for revving our engine, to go back to the car metaphor. Um, 
it's the fight or flight um, system. It, it revs us to get ready to make a move. Um, so these two systems are constantly at play in our body in, in every moment in our life. And the vagus nerve is, is responsible for 80% of our parasympathetic drive. So it's responsible for 80% of our capacity to be able to relax in its most simplest form. And for a lot of people, you know, in my research for this paper was, why, why do you do yoga? What brings you to yoga? And for a lot of people, the answer is really simple. And it's just to relax, to take a slice out of my day from work, family, all of the other roles that I play, and just to relax. And I feel like at some point in our lives, all of us can uh, tap into that intention as well. And so this nerve then becomes really key to understanding because it's basically the primary driver of being able to relax. The Another interesting thing about the vagus nerve is that 80% of the vagus nerve is sensory. So it is responsible for taking in sensory information back to the brain. And this is what uh, many people have started to discuss, including Andrew Huberman, um, who I really enjoy um, working with and listening to uh, as bottom-up processing. And it's this, this idea that we process information sort of you can think of it as from the bottom up, but more from the outside in. Um, and I like that, that way of describing it from the outside in, because when we're talking about the yoga practice, one of its greatest benefits is that we move in all sorts of directions. It's not a linear, or it doesn't have to be a linear practice. There's lots of lateral movement and rotation, and we can face all sorts of directions and upside down and, and twisted. And um, so essentially what's happening when we're when we're doing our yoga practice is that all of the sensations that we are experiencing through asana and breathing and and, and concentrating the mind and you know all of the other things that we utilize in practice those that information is being driven back into the brain like that first car that was able to sense the hot tea in the cup it's being driven back to the brain to tell the brain what's going on the brain then responds. And this is where we see these ideas of we maybe get out of a pose or we adjust the pose or we stay in the pose or we breathe more deeply or don't breathe at all. And, and it's this, this bi-directional pathway that's going on. And so some of the arguments against bottom-up processing is that, well, it should be kind of the other way. And I'm no expert, but I think based on my experience is that I mean, the vagus nerve is bi-directional, meaning that information goes up and information goes down. And so uh, like the paths of yoga, you know, some people may have a harder time connecting to that sensory information for whatever reason. And it may be easier for people to do sort of a top-down processing method. And that's, and that's fine. I think through the practice of yoga, whatever way you're processing information, it will inform the other direction. And then we start to get free-flowing traffic along the two-lane, um, you know, rural highway. And there's no traffic jams anymore. That obviously takes time. And that, that two-way processing isn't only Vegas or two-way processing. It's, the, it's also the, the entirety of the, the peripheral nervous system is, having, is engaged in that. So it's not only those Vegas-related visceral nerve connections, but, say, musculoskeletal nerve connections, skin sensation, uh, the sense of the temperature of the air, 
coming to our cognitive apparatus being registered, if we might again think bottom or bottom up, or I love it, you know, outside in, that that at outside in traveling these other pathways as well, um, to this the into the central nervous system, within that central nervous system, within that say that brain to, for, to focus in the brain aspect of the central nervous system for a moment, there are other mechanisms it would seem that are playing a role that I'm just. Loving the idea that this gets f- more ferreted out, fleshed out, no pun intended, that <laughs> there's, let's just say, an amygdala that <laughs> is kind of significant up there in the <laughs> house in the gray-white matter up there. <laughs> the the, the para-aqueductal uh, formation, that there's interactions that occur that are occurring there that are not that they're autonomous from what's happening through the larger peripheral nervous system, but rather there is processing that is occurring that is occurring between, or rather within those, those structures of the, of the cortex itself and cortex limbic before we get to, let's say where they're receiving something that's coming up through reptilian brain, we could, we sort of like, you know, the, the, a hat on a hat on a hat kind of an idea. We have this reptilian and this limbic and this, this, you know, the human or the rather mammalian brain up on top there, there's processing that's occurring in the top. So not independent of everything's interconnected. I get, I get that. I mean, I hope everyone gets that we're all these interconnected whole neurologically integrated beings. Primary processing though, or not primary processing, but significant processing from that bottom up. If I'm following the, the, the thinking of uh, well, Stephen Porges and as the primary original advocate of the Holovagal theory is that one of the sig- most significant aspects of this is said to be on respiratory heart rate, uh, on resp- respiratory uh, uh, va- variation, and and that that it is here that we come most preciously to where we might connect a yoga practice where breath is affecting heart rate variability. And we're getting a sensitization to this through vagus input. Primarily, is it being suggested, as I'm gathering here, that it's primarily through vagus input, bottom up, outward, out in, to, to, to refine our breathing in a way that affects heart rate, that further stimulates parasympathetic nervous system, that is further helps us to relax, to be calm, to be, I think, in that probably more present. So without going yeah. further with that, because I want to go further with that, I w- I'd like to, to get to, to be quiet for a moment and listen to you, your, your thoughts about what I'm suggesting here. Yeah, well, it's it's exactly it, because the vagus nerve, then as it travels down from the brainstem and through the body, it innervates all of our major organs below the level of the neck. Um, so you can think of the heart as a great example, the lungs, um, the spleen, all of these major organs that it innervates. And these organs fall under the umbrella of the autonomic surf- nervous system. So another branch um, to <laughs> make things a little more confusing, but the autonomic nervous system is a branch of the nervous system that sort of regulates all of those things in your body that happen automatically. So easy way to remember autonomic, automatic. Um, 
breathing is a great example. We don't really have to think about breathing, digesting our food, beating our own heart. Um, and this is a good thing because metabolically, it would just be uh, absolutely ridiculous to try and sustain these organ systems that are constantly at play for us to like to remember to beat your heart. Like don't, <laughs> don't forget to beat your heart. Yes. Yes. What a yoga practice though. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> to just to really coat that <laughs> each beat in the mindful attention. But yeah, so the vagus nerve innervates all of those major systems. And as you recall, it's it's 80% sensory. So every time that you're feeling, as an example, your heart rate increase, whether that's because you're nervous or you're excited or you're running or doing a vigorous vinyasa practice, that vagus nerve is going to pick that up. It's going to pick up that change in heart rate. And it will, that little car again, is going to travel back up into the brain and say like, hey, we've sort of... Um, moved away from what our resting heart rate is, our homeostatic kind of place, the place that we like to be, uh, just thought I should let you know. And based on that information, the brain will then respond. And that response is what became really interesting to me because that response is largely based on memory. And this is where the sort of the areas of the brain, like the amygdala come into play. Um, based on your experiences in your life on and off the yoga mat uh, for this example those experiences will create memories and di different types of memories that sit in the brain and as an example you can think of the the story of walking down a, a dark alley and as you walk down a dark alley you see this coil on the ground uh, but it's it's quite dark you can't see and so upon seeing this coil you you have a physical and physiological reaction to that and if you're like me and and grew up fearful of reptiles and uh, dark alleys <laughs> then you know my response to that is likely going to be an increase in heart rate, uh, among many other things. And this is that sympathetic drive kicking in, that fight, flight, or freeze. My body is revving itself up to get ready to do something because that coil to me looks like it could be dangerous. Now, as, the, as I walk further down the alley, for some reason, all of a sudden a light shines onto this coil and I recognize now that it's, it's not a snake, which is what I thought it was, but it's a rope instead, just a discarded rope. At that point, upon seeing that, there's going to be that sort of flush that we feel in our body, that sense of like, whew, release, right? Oh, it's just a rope. Everything's fine. And it's that, that feeling of the big exhale, the shoulders drop, and the heart rate slows. Now, this is, you know, system happens for a lot of us, and we don't have to think about it. But for someone maybe who has some other type of uh, traumatic experience involving snakes in, in this example. Upon seeing this coiled rope on the ground and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have a, a very similar physiological response, but even as the light shines on it, there's a good chance that some people aren't going to be able to sort of come down from that fight or flight. They're going to just sort of linger there in that, that, that state of being primed and ready to go. And, and what is this about? Well, largely, and, and some of it could have to do with this idea of vagal tone. Um, the vagus nerve not only innervates um, the organ systems below the level of the neck, but it also innervates some of the nuclei at the corners of the eyes and the mouth. And so it, uh, you know, it, it, 
the things that we are seeing in the world uh, are also going to affect our ability to relax. And if we have some type of history with coiled snakes, and as the light comes on, we, we still kind of think it's a snake, we can't let go of the idea that it's not actually a snake, then the, the vagus nerve is gonna, it isn't gonna be able to transmit the knowledge back that this is just a rope back to our brain and we need to sort of come down or calm down. And then we or stay in this- trauma is triggered. Or the trauma is triggered. Um, and it, we stay in this elevated state of, of being. And you can imagine that if you linger in an elevated state of increased heart rate and all of these fight or flight responses for a prolonged period of time, how exhausting it's it's the equivalent of you know running a marathon adrenal and glands are always on fire your other your, your norepinephrine is is heightened your... yeah and we see the um, endocrine system coming into complete imbalance when some of these what we call you know stress hormones are circulating in the bloodstream for yeah. prolonged and unnecessary amounts of time and so taking all this information again trying to relate it back to yoga well how, how does this relate and in my experience it's um taking kapotasana as a great example for myself i have a fairly bendy a couple spine. was a, a gangster in chicago a couple was a pigeon a pigeon Kapo was a pigeon and this pigeon is a particular kind of a pigeon yes this kapotasana is a it's a camel deep back bend your head is to the mat and you reach your arms overhead that your inflection to your shoulders and you perhaps hold your toes your heels your knees or not but let's say that's the basic pigeon that we're talking about here thank you kapotasana yes, yes. kapotasana um a, a wonderful pose and one that i've been always been able to kind of just drop back into and grab my heels but every time that i would go into this uh and as i was starting to look into the nervous system I would notice these feelings of, you know, heart rate increasing, which is simply a function of like shape change that's happening in the thorax region and stuff like that. But uh, along with this increased heart rate, notice the feeling of the posture coming back to this idea of feeling. Well, how does this feeling pose feel? It feels kind of scary right now. It feels I'm feeling panicked, maybe some a sense of anxiety and, you know, all the other things that you might feel in a posture that are not so related to my muscle feels stretched or my muscle feels fatigued, feels different. And as soon as that feeling would come into Kapotasana for me, my reaction to that was get out <laughs> and just like get out as fast as you can and, and do something else, which was usually sort of the opposite, you know, Kapotasana being a backbend, close it all in, go into a forward bend. And so as I started to explore this idea of vagal nerve and vagal tone, it was, okay, well, what's actually happening in Kapotasana? Uh, my, my physical body doesn't hurt when I'm there and it doesn't hurt when I get out after, you know, it's nothing like that, but I can't get away from this feeling. And so saying, okay, well, next time this happens, I'm just gonna stay there. I'm just gonna stay there and I'm just gonna just, just kind of see what's there. Just see what's there. Take a take a couple deep breaths, which is something that we so easily to say, everyone. Just take a couple deep breaths when you're getting, you know, riled up, I guess. And I did, and all of a sudden, this feeling just started to dissolve very gradually. It was, you know, still there, lingering in the background, but it, it was almost instantaneous. And I was able to stay there and breathe through the posture, and you know, take your breaths um, and come back up. And I thought, this is some type of 
black magic or something because like it's I, like how did, how did this work and so what we see is that the vagus nerve is as i said sort of innervates all the tissues below the neck and one of the things that it innervates is the larynx and the trachea which is you can think of as the throat and one of the most popular methods of breathing in yoga practice is what we would call ujjayi breath or uh, what i like to just call breathing with sound and breathing with sound comes from just like a gentle constriction in the throat area um, and as we constrict through the throat it has the byproduct of lengthening the breath because as you constrict the tunnel through which the breath passes i mean less volume can get through at any given amount of time so it takes more time to inhale and exhale and so what is this idea that like take a deep breath why does that work well one of the reasons why i mean these um people like Stephen porges and andrew Huberman would suggest that it works is that because the vagus nerve sort of travels through the trachea and the larynx, that when we create that little constriction in the throat, it has the effect of uh, sort of pressing on this vagus nerve. And you can think of the vagus nerve as almost a guitar string. And there's well, another- There are receptors there that it is connecting through. Yes, yeah, to, and, yes. and around the heart for sure yes. too. Yeah. And also, excuse me, the second part you said that also... Uh, all around the heart. All around the heart. Yeah, more specifically, yeah. Um, and so you can think of the vagus nerve as a bit of a guitar string. So you, if you play an instrument or anything like that, you know that if you have your guitar and you just put it off onto its stand and you don't use it for a couple of months, by the time that you pick it up, uh, there's a good chance that it'll need some tuning as you you know start to pluck the strings and loosen them up a little bit, if you will, so that they cre can create music with a little more... Um, a little more ease. And it's like the same thing with the vagus nerve. You can think of it as a guitar string. If you never pluck it, then it's going to need a heavy tune up. And when you do pluck it, it might not sound the way that you want it to sound or, or, or do what, you know, it's intended to do. Make I think also if you're habitually plucking it in strong and perhaps you sort of, you might think of sort of violent ways, being angry, yelling, sh sh uh, short circuiting the breath, um, one's also going to have an effect on those strings. Think like no practice of being conscious in your body, no sense of being calm in your life, having those kinds of reactive uh, um, experiences that one might have when already afraid of snakes or coiled ropes <laughs> or have other things that can be triggers to traumatic, post-traumatic stress stimuli and all. Um, so anyway, please. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's sort of that idea of, um, you know, walking the middle path. Can you, you know, yoga, I don't think is really about residing on either end of the extreme. Uh, that's, that's almost too easy to do. But rather, yoga, the practice of yoga gives us this real ability to toggle between the two extremes, being able to pluck the guitar string uh, when we need to, but then also being able to put the guitar down when we don't need to and, and be in the middle somewhere. And so, yeah, we see uh, people who have, or maybe coming to the practice with trauma and having it re-triggered and activated uh, through, through the practice. It's almost just like just plucking this guitar string constantly, constantly. And they've been doing it all day. You know, they've been doing it all year and the guitar string is getting tired and now they come to yoga and they're just plucking it harder. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's going to, it's, it's going to wear out. Um, and so when we can 
pluck the string when we need to and lay it down when we don't, the, the guitar string, which is, again, this metaphor for the vagus nerve, becomes healthy. And we might refer to this as being toned um, when we're talking about the nervous system. And so this toned vagus nerve then gives us this ability to take in our sensory information about Kapotasana, snake in the alleyway, uh, you know, in the increase in our heart rate, whatever it is, to take that information back to the brain um, to tell it what's going on. And then the brain can, because we have this element of self-awareness, tell our body what to do in order to downregulate ourselves. And in the yoga practice, it can be through something like just deep breathing, if you will, or breathing with sound. Um, and that can be enough to start to kind of wake it up a little bit or, or refine the way that we use it and give us this ability to then see ourselves in something like Kapotasana for what it is. And my experience is that, okay, we have that message going through our system and then I'm here, I'm in Kapotasana. I, my spine feels okay. My shoulders feel okay. My body feels okay. I'm I'm relaxed, I feel safe, and now here I am, five, six, seven, eight breaths into the posture, and all of a sudden, there's that steadiness to it. There's that steady state of, of being, which is you know what people might say they come to the practice for, to relax. And I don't think relaxation needs to be the byproduct of a 60-minute vinyasa practice, but rather a quality that we can inject into every moment of the practice so, to some degree. With the idea of that, of a middle path, um, most of us, I think in our daily lives, there's a lot that causes us to move quite quickly, be reactive to navigate the world, our lives. Um, and thank goodness we have a sympathetic nervous system to help us along the way with everything. Uh, people sometimes, the, the sympathetic nervous system can get a bad rap um, we, 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 we do need to, um, have sometimes quick response, uh, mobilization of our systems to help us with various things. Uh, you know, stepping back from crossing the, the crosswalk when a, a bus is suddenly coming by or whatever it happens to be, uh, surviving. Um, and at the same time, we were pretty stressed out for the longest time. A lot of people have suggested that without getting into the science of it all, that the number one benefit of yoga in all the various studies that were done early on and we were trying to get you know studies and science of yoga the one thing that we could see was that it helped us to relax it helped us to calm down the, the number one benefit of yoga seemed to be around stress and now we're getting this deeper understanding of well just what how is that working and so where i'm going to go next with this is that one of the greatest challenges i find often as a yoga teacher is well first is encouraging my students to breathe that's why i say something about the breath about every fifth word um the other is to whether it's ujjayi or what but but to suggest slowing down the breath to finding comfort in the breath to, to finding a comfortable pace of the breath a, a, a sense of a sustainable pace of the breath and to, to first get at that perhaps simply sitting or standing without movement just yet just find the breath if you will find that comfortable sustainable sense of the breath and now look to make that something of a thread through your practice how quickly do you move? I will suggest, well, as move as slowly as it takes to stay with that sense of that quality of the breath, that it's in this that we are getting at what works. 
in yoga, you're unpacking some of this at a deeper level of the, of the neurophysiology of practice, which is beautiful, helpful, I think, to all of us to see, to, to get these, these deeper insights, I think, Allison. Um, but, but so just that idea that is that if we can slow down everything, a slow practice rather than a faster practice, we can start to get a better toning in this way, a better sense of being present and being aware, fully coating our experience, as you put it, um, with awareness all along the way. And along the way, things come up that might stimulate a little bit of sympathetic nervous response. Things come up, whatever they are, arising from physical sensation, emotion, or whatever it happens to be. I love the idea of ultimately being able to sometimes move really quickly, whether it's on the mat or out in the world, to explore no less calm, no less present, no less coated in awareness, no less present with the breath. But now, and maybe this is something you might also somewhat connecting to say Budokan, where now you're not simply, let's say, sitting, but you're also moving in a variety of ways. Holding that thought for a moment, I also don't want to lose a thought about kapotasana and how it, you know fully opening up the front body, it, it, it very opening up the front the front body, it, it, the precisely opposite position that we spend say our our nine months in gestation, we're in child's pose essentially uh, in gestation, and what happens when we're freaked out about something when we need to nourish ourselves? We curl up into a ball, and child's pose is just about the opposite in just about every joint of kapotasana, of pigeon pose. It goes the other way. We turn into ourselves. We fold into ourselves. We change where that nerve stimulation is in terms of front of the spine and back of the spine. So I know that's a, that latter point, I don't, I, not, not to focus on that. Just yet. I don't want to lose that. What I wanted to focus more on was just the idea of, of, of sort of, okay, not a razor's edge, but that edge of the middle path and being able to sustain that and how as teachers, we get our students to, I'm a bit biased with this, but to slow down, to slow it down and make the breath, the heart of the practice, a sense that every asana that we're doing, every transition and sort of happening around and through the integrity of the breath, rather than compromising the breath for a pose, for, for an attainment or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, I love that idea. And it, it was one of the things that uh, it deeply interested me in Budokan because it was this practice that suggested you can really go to both ends of sort of this, this spectrum of effort and ease, but both, both opposing ends can have the same type of integrity to them. And so can you move quickly and powerfully with the same control and steadiness to not only the breath, but the complete body mind as you have when you're seated comfortably on your bolster with your eyes closed, the conditions are perfect for a uh, silent space for you. And it's uh, this, it, it comes back to this idea of practice for a lifetime. And what keeps you know pulling me personally back to this practice is that it really isn't a place, the mat isn't a place to separate your life as my yoga practice is a completely separate entity from every other part of my life. But it's, it's, a, it's just as connected because it, 
it gives us this ability, the yoga practice, to do hard things, challenging things, fast things and slow things, but try to uh, cultivate all of those qualities of effort, ease, stira, sukham, um, mindfulness, awareness in all moments. And now what happens in your life when things aren't going well uh, in the morning and you're getting the kids out the door for school, uh, things are fast, you're packing the lunches, you're getting the snowsuits and you know there's a lot happening, everybody's moving, uh, can that still be mindful? I think, of course, it can. If you've ever been into any type of um, high volume sort of emergency room, right, in, in, uh, in a hospital, you see these really uh, intelligent people, like groups of them, so many of them, and it's chaos, <laughs> it's loud, there's, you know, there's injuries, there's, there's so much going on, yet it's the smoothest flowing system that's happening. Everything, everyone has their role and everybody is completely mindful of con and conscious of what they're doing. And they're, they're doing it with complete intent and integrity. And that's why the system works. And I think that's the cross that we see between yoga practice and life and it giving us this really life-changing tool to um, be able to toggle between the two extremes. It also evokes for me, I don't know if you're familiar with Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow. It's a, a fascinating yes. uh, yeah. work that gets it in, in, this, in a different way. He's more of a psychologist. He's a psychologist, not a neuroscientist, but no less. There's a, his work, as much of psychology today, is increasingly informed by neuroscience. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And we'll make sure that, that, by the way, all the references, as I want to remind our, my listeners, our listeners, are all, the references that we make, whether they seem something of a casual reference, we will, we will note all of those in our show notes so you can follow up on your own. You'll have a link to things that both of us have mentioned along the way here with just about everything. So going just a little bit farther with that, and I've, um, the, at the beginning, we highlighted, uh, you're a mom. You have twins. I do. Uh, you also have a husky. Uh, you I have do. a life. <laughs> you, you have that, uh, that is, you have a larger life uh, than what happens on your yoga mat. And so we've talked about feeling. We've talked about thinking. Um, and, and then there's acting, not only on one's mat, but in one's life, in that larger world. The world is not getting any less complex right now, even as we might do things to try to make our lives in some way simpler. And to be able to be clear in what we're doing, how we're feeling and thinking. Um, we have a war raging in Ukraine right now. We have uh, issues of climate change. We have all kinds of issues, if you will, in just about every community around the world and various, various sorts. And here we have these practices uh, that allow us to, I, I hope, ideally, to live our lives in more conscious ways, more deliberate ways, clearer ways. I hope in ways that are involved greater loving kindness, just generally, if we just get that basic idea embodied in every, all of us, I think we'd have a better, a better world. I just wanted to kind of get hear from you a little bit more, if you would, on how all of this then translates, not to bring, be, too, be too personal, but back into your personal life and you know how you move through your day and through your week and in the midst of a world that where things are complex, even in a, an area, you know, outside of the city of, of Ottawa and in Canada, where most people think Canada and they think, ah, how wonderful. Everything must be just so just pure, perfect. 
relaxed, eh? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think like the asana practice um, itself, it changes throughout your lifetime. It changes with the phases of your life. And um, with with that, how you integrate it into your into you know your life is also going to change and so you know maybe before becoming a mom and having kids the way that I sort of understood the yoga practice um, and saw you know other parts of my my life through that lens were very different than I see now and for now with things that are going on in the world some some major uh, environmental and social issues that are going on. I find for me, the yoga practice becomes this reminder to not take a side very quickly, uh, to not immediately bounce to one side of the spectrum, which again, I think is really easy to do. And to instead employ some degree of critical thought and self-reflection and self-inquiry into everything that's going on and how I am responding to it, how I am interpreting it, and just seeing things um, through that lens for a while and not just, okay, you know, this thing happened last night and now I've formulated a complete opinion that I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna stand on <laughs> until the end of time, but just employing that critical thinking element and through research and in discussion and being able to then make some type of informed decision or thought based off of that. And I think then also more importantly, being also okay to to feel like you're in the middle and to feel like, well, maybe I can see a little bit of both sides of things and maybe I can empathize with um, with everybody involved and, and have some compassion for everybody involved instead of picking the good and the bad. And in terms of being a mom, it's sort of those are the type of things that I think are important to pass on to, uh, for me, for, for my kids is just this idea that, I don't know, things just aren't, aren't black and white. Um, as you said, the, the world is so complex and convoluted. There's, there's just so many uh, variables involved in everything and they matter. It's, uh, it's not something that we can, that we can, just kind of brush brush over and, and try to get to the heart of things. They really matter. And for my kids, it's like, well, instead of it just being this is good and bad, well, like let's talk about that a little bit. Like what 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 are your ideas of good and bad and where does that come from also? Um, where, you know, these ideas of right and wrong and just having these discussions with them and they're only five, but um, they're old enough, I believe, to understand these really big ideas and these really big concepts that uh, for me, you know, I, I don't know if I was having these discussions as a kid. And so, you know, being in, in your 20s, it's maybe something that's a little more new uh, to you and you start to explore it then. But I think what a gift to give my kids these and have these conversations with my kids at such a young age. Uh, so they have that as they get older and they can see the world right now um, at this really amazing phase in their life where they're just sponges of, of curiosity uh, to have that degree of critical thinking already. It's beautiful that rather than, let's say, telling one's children what to think or how to think, to encourage them to feel, to listen, to consider, to have compassion, 
um, to, to weigh things. Um, so much of our, you know, so much of what we see with child development, child nurturance is indoctrination to a certain view that often within the household. Um, and I think that many of us tend to go quite quickly, quite reactively uh, to a certain view of something. We, you know, an event occurs in the world or, or there's something happening in the world around whatever it is in society and environment and all. And we're very, very quick to, to create categories and boxes and put people in them. Um, I think one of the most important things indeed today is listening, active listening, uh, drawing people out, trying to understand others' experience that, that uh, we have a tendency to sometimes suggest that someone is bad, that things are sort of black and white, she said, as others say. Um, well, you know, what are the, <laughs> there are, we do live in a vastly diverse world diverse in every respect, including the feelings that people have about things that are happening. What are those feelings? Where are they coming from? Uh, I want to better try to better understand the feelings themselves. What are different people's understandings of things? And if I, in the end, don't agree with them, I would still hope to be able to have some compassion. I would draw the line at certain points where someone is going to impose their ideas on other people. I consider those, that imposition itself or the ideas to be uh, violent of consequence to others in the world, harmful in the world, then I would oppose them, certainly. But uh, we, we've come to a place where there's uh, not a conversation. Uh, often we simply just close the doors on entire categories of people um, because we can't see through the blinders of our own worldview, our own uh, lenses, if you will. Um, I would hope that, uh, to in, in keeping with what you're saying, having greater compassion and to consider how in all of our relationships it is in some ways, how would you relate to your five-year-olds in this matter? Consider that as you're having a conversation with your neighbor or your coworker, someone with whom you don't agree that you're with whom you're debating about some issue in the world. How would you approach your five-year-old with this? Would you put them down into a chair and lecture them, tell them the way that it is? Well, and I think this is why greater compassion. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is one of the greatest things about yoga and specifically yoga teacher trainings. Um, it's at the heart of my yoga teacher trainings. It's like really starting to look at some of these concepts that we've talked about um, in this conversation. And it's like when you take a yoga teacher training, it might not necessarily to be a yoga teacher, you know, it, it might be, but a lot of what it can do is it can give you these these tools of self-reflection that you may or 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 may not have coming into it and it's um it's that process of understanding the the fundamentals of the nervous system the way the mind works the way the body works how it's all interconnected and for a lot of people i find when they make these connections in their own body and in their own practice where it's like oh well this is why i'm reacting to this pose this way or this is what's happening at the core of my body and you know this is maybe why i see things the way that they are uh all of a sudden you have now this embodied experience of what that is. Wow, I, I acted this way because of that. And isn't that empathy to be able to relate to someone because you too have had that experience. And so the next time that somebody has a different opinion than you, 
instead of being able to, or instead of reactively kind of jumping all over that. And again, yeah, putting them in their box um, and, and be staying in your box, it becomes so much easier to exercise that, that compassion for um, understanding uh, when you can see a little bit of where they're coming from and what a gift. In a and world it is indeed a gift. And I'll suggest, uh, just really underline again, um, the idea of a, of a lifetime of practice, of uh, practicing for a lifetime, wherever that practice for a lifetime might begin. So some listeners might be in their 40s or 50s and maybe just dabbling with yoga or maybe just beginning to explore yoga. Um, you can still have a lifetime of yoga. And also there's something about yoga teacher training that I'd like to just really highlight for a moment. And that is that Yoga teacher training is not just yoga teacher training, thinking of sort of like technical minutia of guiding students in postural breathing, contemplative or other kinds of practice, how to hold the space of a room and plan and design your classes and whatnot. Um, yoga teacher trainings, I will suggest if they are of quality, of high quality, are, are transformational experiences. You come into relationship with yourself, you come in rela into relationship with others. Um, finding those trainings that really feel right to you that and, and this is a message to everyone who is exploring <laughs> such things investigate discuss talk with people who've been in those trainings in the past themselves what are their experiences there really try to get a feeling for who is this person who i would be with as the facilitator of this training um and i just want to suggest that uh even though someone might live uh close to nature in the outskirts of ottawa increasingly we are all available available globally and allison's trainings workshops classes and all increasingly online as well as in person um i believe in person still or in a variety of ways uh where i'm going with this is in bringing some closure here to our conversation is to encourage uh our listeners uh, check out the show notes check out the link specifically to allison's uh, website and other resources that she that she has and that she's referred to throughout this um and i must say that it was an absolute joy to me to have you as a participant in the training that that i did and i would hope to someday collaborate with you on some level in something as we move forward on these these paths allison um i want to thank you truly thank you uh uh from my heart from my brain uh for sharing <laughs> with us for being here with us uh today and um I look forward to this being yet another seed that we plant for, for more. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been uh, a really amazing couple of years. As you said, it's uh, with technology, we've been able to connect globally and that has allowed me to study and practice with you from afar. And uh, it's been, it's been really lovely to have these conversations over the last 14, 15 months and learn from one another and share. So thank you so much. I look forward to, to hearing more. I look forward to seeing you down the path. Be well. All the best <laughs> to you. Namaste. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening. Please see the show notes for links and resources from today's show, as well as links to our sponsors of this episode. If you're enjoying or learning from the Yoga Room podcast, please tell your friends and others who might be interested. And you can also subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you never miss anything.
If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please rate and review the show to support us in sharing healthy practices and engaging ideas from around the world. And again, thank you for joining us today. 